wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking in the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Thus far the word of the Lord. Seventy-five sermons. That's what this sermon makes in the course and our series through the Gospel of Mark. This has been a two-year study. In fact, two years and just a few weeks. And I don't know uh, about everyone in the room. I know that at least I have been present for all 75 of them. And it is my hope that this morning as we conclude this study in the Gospel of Mark, that not too many of you are rejoicing to then move on to another thing. I've loved preaching this Gospel. I'm going to miss Mark and the way he writes. It has been for me a blessing and I hope that also for you it has been a blessing likewise. But you see, all good things come to an end. After all, that's what people say, right? And we know that this is the eternal Word of God. It doesn't come to an end, but you understand the figure of speech. And I think also that if some people are here this morning, especially if you're visiting, you may be a little bit confused. You may ask the question as we are sitting in our seats on December 12th, why is it that we are studying an Easter-related text, a text on the resurrection of Jesus? Isn't this the wrong time of year? And for those who have been with us, and even maybe you picked it up from a moment ago, you may know that the culture of our church is that we go verse by verse through whole books of the Bible. We don't omit any of them. Chapter by chapter, the whole thing. And while I would love to claim the credit and say, yes, this was all planned, it was absolutely not planned. This is according to the providence of God that we are where we are today. I do, however, want to say... And I think it's a wonderful mercy of God that as we approach a season where the whole world has their eyes, their minds, at least in partial form, focused on the historical reality of the birth of Christ, that in our study, 
We are looking at, considering, and studying what his birth was meant to accomplish. The death of death. I think it's a wonderful thing. Because it presses us, yes, this Lord's Day, but over the next few weeks, to interpret the eternal Son of God who took on flesh and lay in the form of an infant as being the one who would die in our place. We know who He is. And so our hearts and our minds ought to be caught up into heavenly hopes and not diminished into some seasonal sentimentality. So I invite you to rejoice that God has brought us here now in this passage to conclude at this time so that our minds might be fixed on the whole Christ, not only the one who is born in the manger. There are three things that I want us to see uh, in the passage this morning. And you may have noticed that we're only studying from verse 1 to 8. We However, in our first point, we'll touch on a strange ending. Verses 9 through 20. I'll give more explanation to that in a moment. A strange ending. The first point derived verses 9 through 20. Secondly, in verses 1 through 3, an act of love. An act of love, verses 1 through 3. And then in verses 4 through 8, a shocking reality. A shocking reality. As we read just a few moments ago, you may have a translation of the Bible that has within it a parenthetical, a little note. Or maybe it's a footnote, or maybe you have a study Bible and it's there contained in the notes. Some of you may have a King James Version of the Bible or a translation derived from it that may or may not have a parenthetical statement or a footnote that, that lays right between verses 8 and verse 9, chapter 16. In my translation, the translators give to me this phrase in that parenthetical. Some of the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. Some of the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. Now, as I say this, some of you will read and hear and think, oh, well, what are we doing here? Are we denying Scripture? And I want to begin by simply saying to you, no, we are not denying Scripture. You may ask the question, well then are we going against inerrancy? No, we are not going against biblical inerrancy. However, we will consider, as the translators touch upon, the question of textual originality. Textual originality. And I want to affirm to you, I'm an inerrantist when it comes to Scripture. I hold that all Scripture is breathed out by God. Theopneustos, that God wrote the Scriptures as 
Holy men were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Absolutely. But we want to be good Bible readers. We want to be honest people. And we want to deal with the Bible on the Bible's own terms. And so there are things we need to explain and touch upon. And we need to examine, especially with what has been called, and some of you may be aware of this, the long ending of the Gospel of Mark. The long ending of the Gospel of Mark, which is in verses 9 through 20 of chapter 16. Some of you may be familiar with how it is that we come to have a Bible in our hands. You, if you're not reading in the Greek or the Hebrew this morning, you will know that this is a translation. If you don't, here's the information. It's a translation. But it's a translation of earlier sources. In the New Testament, those sources are written in Koine or Common Greek. It's the ancient language of the Roman Empire. Specifically, when we touch upon the Gospel of Mark, you may know that when we ask the question, does anybody have the original piece of paper or parchment or vellum upon which Mark the man took a pen in his hand under the power of the Holy Spirit and then wrote the Gospel? The answer would be, no, we don't have that specific paper. It's my prayer that one day we will find it. That one day it will come to light. There will be in a jar like what happened at the Dead Sea in Qumran. They'll just find it there. But according to the Gospel of Mark, we don't have it. But we do, and this is where we derive our biblical text, have manuscripts or copies that are good of the earliest letter, this letter, the original. We have copies of it that have come down through history. When we speak about that, you may have the question, well, how many do we have, right? And you may expect, you know, this is an ancient book. This is 2,000 some odd years old. How many could we possibly have, right? You may think, guess, maybe we have two or three, right? As some other very famous ancient text might have. Maybe we have 10 or 15, right? You think that's a decent number of the ancient library coming down through so much history. But textually, from a manuscript standpoint, we have either full text or fragments of 1,200 plus 20 manuscripts. 1,220. 1,220 manuscripts, either in full or in part, from the ancient times with the earliest even stretching back into the very early portions of the 3rd century, maybe even the 2nd century. That is substantial. That far surpasses what we have of Plato and Aristotle and the Bhagavad Gita and other ancient texts that are not biblical. This is enormous. And that's just speaking regarding the Gospel of Mark alone. If your jaw is not on the floor about that number, I can't help you. But what I'm trying to tell you is that when we get the translation, that that translation is made from a Greek text that takes all of those 1,200 some odd texts of Scripture and compares them one to another, giving favor to the earlier with the expectation that earlier equals closer to the original. 
Do you understand what I'm saying? It's comparing one copy to another copy and coming to the best text. And you may ask the question, well, Pastor, is it just that there are all kinds of discrepancies? And the answer is no. What, what are the discrepancies usually? A comma, a period, a verbal tense. Nothing huge. Nothing that would be doctrinal in its nature that would change the full meaning of the text or redefine any of the biblical And you may ask the question, well, where does this happen? Well, it happens about a mile down the road, just a few kilometers from here. It's one of the greatest centers of biblical, textual criticism and work. Right there, the Deutsche Bibelgesellschaft, I may have messed this up, but the men here who are in the know could correct me. And the thing that the translators have seen, the thing that the scholars have realized is that in the earliest manuscripts, the ones that go nearest to the first century, nearest to the writing of the Gospel of Mark, that verses 9 through 20 are not present. They're not there. They are, however, in a large number, a larger number, I need to say, of later manuscripts. But they're not the earlier ones. That would mean the earliest church that had in their hands the Gospel of Mark didn't know verses 9 through 20, most likely. At least in the place in which it is in the Gospel of Mark. Sometimes people ask the question, well, is that it? That's the only issue that people have in verses 9 through 20. That's the only uh, thing. Is It's just not in the oldest ones. But there are other differences, and one of them is that the early Christians, the church fathers, uh, Eusebius and Clement of Alexandria, Origen, and others, don't know about it. When they write on the end of Mark, where do they end? They end at verse 8. It's just there. It's an abrupt ending. It's a strange place to end. I'm going to mention it in a second. I think it's intentional. In fact, I'm certain of it. But they don't know of it. The early church didn't seem to have a mind of it because we do have their writings and quite a lot of them. But you might say, well, is it just because there's a silence in the church fathers that we think that, well, if you don't know Greek, you'll just have to take my word and the word of others who do study Greek And that is that the Greek's different. In the first eight verses, you have three, maybe four words that are original, that are different, or at least unique usages from the whole of Mark's Gospel, from a vocabulary standpoint. But in the last verses, verses 9 through 20, you've got like 12 in just a few verses that were never used. And you have to ask the question, does Mark then, in the very end, in the last moment, Learn a whole bunch of new vocabulary that he's never made use of before. It's a good question. It's not one that completely settles it. Could Mark have used different language? Of course he could. He had every freedom under the Holy Spirit. But another thing I would say is that his Greek style is different. It's even different. You can look at it with me from between verse 9 and verse 1. Verse 1, we read about Mary Magdalene. And Mary, the mother of James, and then you look back even, verse 47 of chapter 15, she just called Mary Magdalene. There's the assumption from Mark that people know who she is. Verse 9, there's a descriptor. Could Mark do it? Sure he could. But there's an uncommon manner of speaking 
regarding the characters. Mary Magdalene, he clarifies, from whom he had cast out seven demons. Mark hasn't done this to this point. He doesn't deal with the titles or names of people in this way. It's a different style. It's stylistically different. It would be a difference between hearing me preach or me write and read my writing and all the terrible handwriting you'd have to read through and then read anybody else in the church. It's just different. And so what I'm saying to you is that I don't think and others that are biblical scholars don't think that verses 9 through 20 are original to Mark's original text. And you may say, well, pastor, then what do we do with this? How do we deal with it? And I also want to say you may disagree with me, and that's okay. It's okay. Perfectly fine. And the first thing I want to say with the question of what should we do with these extra verses that don't appear to be original... And what I want to say is this, that they give a faithful account. Though I doubt originality, they are still faithful. They're still orthodox. The things that they teach are found in other Gospels. They are in direct accord with what this Gospel teaches. There's no doctrine gained that's strange or new. There's no doctrine lost. They're a faithful account. I mean, what do we have? We have the account of Jesus, after he's resurrected, meeting and appearing to the women and to his disciples personally, and then the Great Commission being given. That's basically what we have. We have that recorded in other Gospels. It's faithful. It's fine. It can be believed on uh, faithfully and reliably. I want to say that to you. Um, And how would I suggest you deal with it? And I think when I read this, that what this is is an appendix. It's a thing that's added to the end of the book to further describe some things. We have this in modern books today. If you have a study Bible, you've got lots of appendices that are added to it. Things unnecessary but helpful, right? And I think the way that we should understand this is that this was added to the text for Christians who didn't have a Bible in the form that we have it. We may not have had Matthew and Luke and John's account of the Gospels, or maybe if they did, they only had portions. And this is for them to fill in some things and to help describe even further what's going on in the Gospel account. And why do I labor this point? Because I want us to be good Bible readers. I want us to, when we see something like this, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include these verses, I don't want you to take your Bible and then throw it wholesale over your shoulder and not have an answer or a way to critically think through these things or even a way to understand how the Bible that you have in your hands has come into those hands. I also don't want you to just look over it ignorantly and feel awkward about it, having no answer with which to deal with the issues. That is an issue. It's a textual issue. The most honest thing we can do as Christians is to look at it and then again let me encourage you to simply say we believe it is, if not original, absolutely faithful. We believe that it will not lead you astray nor does it teach a doctrine different than the whole of the Scriptures and that spiritually you may read it as an appendix if that is so much your opinion of it. I think faithful, helpful, useful and used by the early church or that you may, I think, in good conscience, 
simply say, Pastor, I don't agree with you. I appreciate what you say. I hold it just as if it were the whole and in the earliest, even if you say that it's not there. We want you to be good Bible readers who aren't confused, taken aback, or even disturbed by the things that you read within your translations of the original text. That's all I would like to say about those verses and encourage you as a Christian to consider these things, to pray over them, and to pursue having a settled heart regarding it. An act of love, verses 1 through 4. We come to verse 1 of chapter 16, and we are closing Mark's gospel. And Mark tells us this, that when the Sabbath was passed, as Jesus is laying in the tomb, when the Sabbath was passed, when Saturday had ended, again, let me encourage you to understand the Hebrew days are, are denoted by the rising and the falling of the sun. It's his on Sunday that two women, the women we've already encountered, Mary Magdalene, verse 47, and Mary, the mother of Joseph, who looked on as Jesus was placed in the tomb by Joseph of Arimathea, that here again Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome, that they came to the tomb. And we're told that they, on their trip to the tomb, or at least at some point, bought spices so that they might go and anoint the body of Jesus Christ. Again, I want you to be encouraged to understand that these are the women we've already spoken of. These are the women that, yes, looked on where his body was laid, but these are also the faithful women that were round about the suffering Christ on the cross. They heard the groaning. They saw the drops of blood. They heard the mocking. They were there. They were there when... Ten of the other disciples were not there. They were there, presumably at the side of John the Apostle, who did leave. They they were not only there at the cross, but they were there with Jesus over the course of His ministry. They cared for Him, that's what we read. And they were His disciples. And they were faithful when others were faithless. They were courageous when others were terrified. But here they're present when all the others are absent. Again, we're told that they come and they bring spices uh, to Jesus' body to anoint Him. And you may have the question, or maybe you already understand the situation. What are they doing here? Why would you bring spices? You and I use spices for many things, but one of the things we don't generally do is rub them on our bodies. And if any of you have ever anointed a corpse, you're fairly original in the modern day. What are they doing? Well, they're attending to the body of Jesus. They're coming, bringing spices, a lot of spices, to care for His body out of the concern that they had of decay. They were concerned that His body would smell, that it would begin to decompose, which makes perfect sense. He's not been embalmed. He's not been dealt with in a great way. We do know from the previous text that Joseph of Arimathea 
had taken him from the cross after requesting his body, that Joseph also bought burial cloths. In the other gospel accounts, we know that he took along with him the man Nicodemus. You remember him, the one that came to Christ and asked about the new birth. That both of these men took, from the other gospel accounts, 75 pounds of spices and that they coated his body even as they cared for him and wrapped him and placed him in the tomb. So there has been something done to his body. Seems the women don't know about it. But they're going and they're concerned to care for his body that it might not decay, that it might not bear up in odor. That's what you should understand here. They're paying him in honor, a duty of love. They're doing something that just simply, I have to say, I think it's fairly obvious, your average person wouldn't want to just do to go and to handle a possibly decomposing body so that the people who loved him might come near as mourners. You may scratch your head and say, man, this sounds kind of strange. It's not that different than the history behind why we bring flowers to funerals. The history is very similar. So that those who come and weep at the side of the casket, the coffin, the tomb, the grave, however you want to call it, are not overwhelmed with the offensiveness of the smell of a corpse. And is it just in the heart of the women that they don't want Jesus to smell poorly? Friends, I tell you, I think it's in the heart of the women that they love Him. And so they come. They love Him and so they come. The question has been asked, why do they come when they come? And I think there are two possible answers. And I think both of them are likely, at least in large part, true. The first reason of why they come early in the morning and not late in the day probably has to do with their concern about a decomposing body. Get there early so that things have not progressed too much in the heat of another day. Maybe that's one part. But another part, and I think this is telling because of who's not there, that they come early in the morning because of the scandal, the fearful scandal of attending to the body of a man who was prosecuted and put to death on the cross. He's an executed man. A dangerous thing it would be to go and be with his body. Why are none of the twelve there, the remaining eleven? They're hiding because they're fearful of what might happen to them. And yet again, the women are there. Yet again, the women are there. And maybe it's the case that this is often what happens in society, that the women are there even when the men aren't. To the shame of men. But they're there because they love Jesus. And as they're hurrying along, we look at verses 2 and 3, and and we see them on their way. It's very early in the day, and the sun has just risen. And whenever they went to the tomb, they were having this conversation, verse 3, with one another. And it's almost as if in their haste they got the spices, they got the things necessary, and they were going to the tomb as quickly as they could. And then the thought entered their mind, what are we going to do about the big stone? Have you ever been in that situation? Where you had something to do, you were in a hurry, you get halfway there and you realize, I don't have absolutely everything I need to do whatever it is that you were going to do. There's something of that here for the women. 
They're running to his body. They're running to do this business. And they say, we're just women. And this is a great big stone that's rolled over the entrance to prevent the body from being taken. To prevent animals from coming in and feasting upon the flesh of the departed. And they're saying simply, I don't know if we can move this thing. I don't know if we can move this thing. And then Mark adds the detail. It was an extremely large or heavy stone. As if we really needed to understand it. The movement of the women is a movement of the heart. They cared to the living Christ. They sat under the living Christ. They knew the living Christ. They saw the suffering Christ and were with Him and looking upon Him with love even in His groaning. And now even in His death their love remains. Have you ever lost a loved one? Somebody you loved in life. Someone you spent time with. A parent, a child, a spouse, whatever it is. Did the love stop with death? Absolutely not. In fact, at times it burns even more eagerly and longingly to simply be with them. And at funerals, just to be with them a little longer, even if it's only the bodily remains. That's why you see tears and hands gripping what's even cold and lifeless. These women loved him. And their act is an act of absolute Love, reckless to themselves, extended to him heart to heart. I have to ask you the question. Because this is not just anybody we're talking about in the grave. This is Christ. And their relationship with him wasn't just interpersonal, but it was spiritual and religious. It was the grounds of Savior and the saved. Not just a friend who they love. It's the same relationship you are invited to have with Christ. And I would ask you, friends, how is your relationship with Christ? And you may think, how many times do we hear this, Pastor? Isn't that what you always say in every sermon? You call me to have a trusting relationship in Him. Of course I do. And I'll always do it until the day I die. I'll do it every time I open the Bible. I'll always call you to faith in Christ. The thing I'm touching upon is this. Have you only faith in Him as a Savior? Or do you also have love for him. You say, well, you're just splitting hairs there and it makes me uncomfortable. It is one thing to know that you have the assurance of the care of another person. It is another thing entirely to love them and to give yourself to them and for them and to care for them and love for them. I want to tell you that I think that that is a dividing thing within the heart of a Christian. That many Christians who say they believe in Jesus and say that they believe that He's the Son of God and say that they believe on Him for salvation, who with their lips make profession of faith, with their hearts show they are not invested in Him. When they don't serve Him. When they don't attend services. And praise Him from their hearts. It's just 
It's an external thing to do. Just like to pay an insurance bill. To know that you're covered. Rather than the expression of a heart of love. I want to call you, Christian, that if you say you have a relationship with Him, that you might not only have faith in Him for the salvation of your souls, that you may not experience hell, but that you would submit yourself to Him in love for Him. Costly love for Him that results in lovely service to Him, love-bound worship of Him, so that your words, your thoughts, your whole expression is based on the heart. It flows naturally and hot in love for Him. I call you to that. I also call you to examine your heart and to correct yourself this morning if that's not where you are. What is the external assurance if it doesn't have within it the great, wonderful, beating heart of the love of Christ and the love reciprocated to Him? It's scarcely faith anyway. Then in verses 4 through 8, we have recorded a shocking reality. The women, they come to the tomb, and in verse 4, as they approach, they see something that they didn't expect. After all, verse 3, they're saying, how are we going to deal with the big stone, right? Well, they arrive, and the stone's already rolled away. It's an open tomb. The doorway is clearly free. They're a little shocked. Now, if you put yourself into the shoes of these women, there, there could have been a number of different questions. Well, the Sabbath is closed. Are they curious? Has someone come and taken the body, desecrating the body? After all, he was executed as a criminal. Have people come to steal the body to pull a ruse? Some have charged and alleged. Maybe those are things that go through their mind. I don't know. Mark doesn't record what the women were thinking. They don't have it recorded within any of it other than they were struck by the sight. Emotions swirled, their hearts were gripped. What emotions? It's hard to say, but they were affected by the sight of a tomb with the stone that would keep people out being rolled away. Very large stone. Verse 5, we read that entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side of the tomb, presumably. We're told he was dressed in a white robe and that they were alarmed. As you read the other gospel accounts, they describe the young man as being an angel. And an angel is a messenger from God, like a mouthpiece. And the other gospel accounts don't assume what Mark assumes, that we would know that this young man dressed in a white robe that has a a sight that's alarming. The other gospels tell you directly that it's, it's an angel, a bright angel with an appearance like lightning. One of the other gospel writers says... And so the women are alarmed. Maybe they're alarmed that not only there's a man or an angel sitting in the tomb that they don't know, that looks striking, but also that the body's not there. Put yourself in their shoes. 
You've buried someone you love. You go to bring flowers to the place of their burial. You come to mourn, to be with them, to express your heart of love again as you're saying goodbye. And you come and you find that someone's dug the grave up and they're not there. You'd be disturbed. You're not human if you wouldn't be. The worst would go through your mind. You would be shocked. The last thing you would ever imagine. You would be alarmed. You might even be frightened as is described in the passage. Where are they? Where is the body gone? Where is he? What have they done to him? Maybe that's the question you would ask. We don't know if that's what the women struggle with, but it only seems human to make the clear assumption of it, at least in part. The angel in verse 6 speaks to them and he says, Do not be alarmed. He could just read it on them. Right? Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. You see, it's almost as if he's directing their attention around the tomb and directing them back in the course of the shock and the concern and the bewilderment of the circumstance. And he's saying simply, women, just just hear me for a moment. You're looking for Jesus. looking for Jesus of Nazareth, the crucified one, the one who died, the one who was placed here. The first word he has to them whenever he directs their attention to him is this, he has risen. Not that his body has been taken and desecrated, but he is risen. Not that his body has seen decay, but that he is risen. Not that he remains dead, but that he is risen and is in newness of life. That is shocking. Some of you may be sitting where you are. And you say, you know, Pastor, there are lots of things about the Gospel of Mark that I've enjoyed. It's been a good story. But here, we're talking about something that's not just strange. You're talking about something completely unnatural. And as you're telling me this story about not only a dead Jesus, but a Jesus that has come back to life... I'm shocked that you would tell me this and I'm shocked that people would believe this and I'm shocked and can't easily believe it myself. And I want to tell you simply this, neither could the women in the tomb. It was shocking whenever they saw the empty place where he was laid. The manner in which his grave and burial cloths were removed and wrapped and in unnatural way. Shocking. And some of you may be rationalizing even now as you're listening to me and just simply say, they just thought Jesus was dead. They just thought it. They just thought He was dead. He wasn't really dead. They put Him in there. He gained strength after a couple days and He got up and He took off. That's just how it is. Or maybe you're thinking, "Eh, that's just the story that Christians want us to believe and maybe somebody else just came and took His body. I want to answer the first question and simply say, 
ancient people were ancient, but they weren't fools. These people were much more educated than us, frankly. Far more literate generally than we are. And what Mark has labored to do again and again and again in the past two chapters is to speak about the suffering and the death of Jesus and to tell you firstly that it was public. People saw this. People perpetrated this. The enemies of Jesus stood there when He breathed His last and judged His body as being lifeless and dead. And they were satisfied enough to abandon the Christ that they hung on the cross as a dead man who they wanted dead. And there were centurions, men charged with the simple task of an executioner. This was their professional task. To put people to death. And they judged Jesus as dead, and so much so that they plunged a spear into his side so that the fluid that surrounded the heart and the lungs because of the crucifixion that he had taken poured out through the the incision. They judged him as a dead man on the cross. Joseph of Arimathea, the women looking on, saw him dead, and Joseph went to Pilate, the civil magistrate, who himself was surprised and said, how is it? Is he really dead? Calling the centurion and saying simply this, give me proof. Are you sure he's dead? And again, the centurion said, yeah, he's done. Dead. Joseph of Arimathea took a dead, lifeless body off of a cursed tree, a dead one, and wrapped it in burial cloths, dealing with the body and would have had a mind, an eye, to feel the, the breathing of the body, whatever. He would have known that Jesus was dead and he didn't do it alone. A dead Christ laid in the grave. And the unambiguous teaching of the Scriptures is that a dead Christ was risen to life. He came back to life. That's what we're saying. That's what the Bible is saying unambiguously. And that's why these women have their minds blown and why they are afraid at the suggestion that Christ has come back from the dead. These people were just as shocked then as we ought to be today about the reality of the resurrection. Nobody found a body. Not a dead one. But the continual testimony of the other gospel accounts, even the long ending here that, though faithful, we may not think original, there is a testimony that though no dead body was found, a living body was found. And He was seen by people. And He was visited. And He did eat. And He was really living, not just a ghost, but a physical body. Some people say, where's the body? Where's the body? Where's the body? I'll tell you this. He walked the streets of Jerusalem. He traveled to Galilee. He sat with his friends. He ate. He talked. He fellowshiped. And then he ascended to heaven, as the book of Acts clearly testifies to. And the Gospel doesn't try to explain it. Doesn't tell you how. Doesn't even try. The Bible never tries to tell you how a dead body can become a living body except to simply subsume it and say, it's the power of God. Some of you may be sitting there and thinking, you know, I like the Christian religion. Yeah, it's fine. I don't know about this. 
I mean, this is miraculous. That's what we're saying. We're saying it's miraculous. A thing done against nature, an unnatural occasion. That's what we're saying. You may be saying, I don't know. I mean, is this essential? I'm a Christian, but this is really stretching it. You know, is, is this essential for the Christian life? And I'll tell you, absolutely yes. The resurrection is the very beating heart and quite possibly the single most essential doctrine of the entire Christian religion. 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul writes in verse 3 to that church, and he says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance, first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. It's absolutely paramount in its importance in the Christian religion. And you may say, but why? I hear him saying this, but why? Well, the Bible tells you why. You go on and you look down at 1 Corinthians 15, to verses 12 through 28. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Without a resurrected Christ, death is death and you're always going to be dead. That's what he's saying to you. There's no hope here. There's no hope there. There really is no good news. Jesus stays in the grave. And we're just a bunch of fools if he didn't raise. It is the pivot of the whole of the Christian religion. A resurrected Christ. But what is gained if we believe in a resurrected Christ? If we believe in the account, the testimony of Scripture? Well, verse 20, 1 Corinthians 15 begins to tell us. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. He's a living king! It will bring a living kingdom. 
The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under His feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that He is expected who put all things in subjection under Him. When all things are subject to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to whom to Him who put all things in subjection under Him, that God may be all in all. How about this for you? Do you fear death? And if you say no, I just call you out. You're not afraid of death? You haven't got a pulse. You're afraid of death. I'm afraid of death. If I'm honest, do you fear death? Well, the Scriptures speak to this according to the resurrection of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, 53. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality when the perishable puts on the imperishable. And the mortal puts on immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What do you gain in the resurrection of Jesus? You gain freedom from sin and all of its effects. And you gain freedom from death and to everlasting life. Reconciled with God, not only according to your soul, but according to your body as He made you in His image and after His likeness. The whole person redeemed. Not just the soul. The whole person. Without the resurrection, you have nothing better than a basic, ancient philosophical, therapeutic Platonism. Plato's in the grave and he's going to stay there if he doesn't have faith in Christ with no hope, just as all of his followers had. Why is the resurrection so important? Because it is the good news, not just that Jesus died, but that he conquered death in our place, and that we may have hope not to stay in the grave. That's good news. That's the good news. I want to say to you, have you ever mourned? Have you ever been at the graveside despairing? The good news is this. In Christ Jesus, that despair will come to an end. That morning, it's not going to be forever. That death hasn't won the victory. But there is a new life coming and it will be in Jesus Christ. And that given freely through faith. And so this morning I offer you simply that. To believe on Christ. And to be saved and to have the hope of your own resurrection. We look at the last verse about how the women dealt with what has been said. Last verses, verse 7. The angel commissions the women to go and tell his disciples and Peter 
that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. You see he's citing the scripture, Mark 14, 27, Mark 9, 31, 32. Go out, tell them just as he told you that he would rise from the dead. Verse 8, the response, and they went out and fled. They ran from the tomb, trembling, struck. They were astonished. Astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Why would Mark end like this? It is a different way, a strange way. He doesn't even sign it. From your best friend, Mark. Maybe it is to simply press us to tremble at the reality of a resurrected Christ ourselves. For that to be the last word of this gospel. That we would deal with it. That we would own a risen and resurrected Christ so that we might do what these women end up doing as they do obey the angel to become witnesses to Jesus having ourselves the assurance of everlasting life in Jesus Christ. I call you to that this morning. I freely offer to you Christ that you might believe on Him and never have fear of death but if anything, to tremble before the Christ who conquered death. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the scriptures and for their teachings. Lord, we thank you for the things we can't understand. Lord, for the testimony of the miraculous. Father, I pray that you would work in our hearts faith in Jesus. Lord, that we would wrestle with these things, that we would Hold in our hearts the assurance of his resurrection and the hope of our own. Father in heaven, we pray this all in Jesus' holy name. Amen.